1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, and along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kles, And on today's show, folks, we are thrilled and honored to have Mustafa Akil, um on the show talking about his books. So, hey, Ed, how's it going? It's going great, Ron. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to this after reading his latest book, so let me I'll read his bio just briefly. A Turkish journalist and author Mustafa oh, wow, uh, a Turkish journalist and author, Mustafa Akil, studied political science and history at Bogazici University since the early 2000s. He has been writing regular opinion columns for Turkish publications. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute since two thousand and eighteen. He's published six books. We're going to discuss two of them today. Ed's going to take his 2011 book, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. And I'm going to take his latest book, 2021, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. Mustafa, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise.
2: Uh, Thank you so much, Ron, and for your kind words. And thanks to Ed as well for hosting me. It's my honor to be uh, uh, on this show and have this discussion with you guys.
1: Oh, well, before we dive into your book, your introduction to reopening Muslim minds, the title is A Night with the Religion Police. And this was from a lecture that you gave in 2017. If if that doesn't draw you into your book, Mustafa, I don't know what would. Can can you tell that story? Uh, Definitely. When I was putting that headline,
2: I had uh, the... Song in my mind. One night in Bangkok, you know, in the eighties. So that song was a fe- probably we all know that. I mean, the, the night I'm speaking was less fancy and less you know, <laughs> less pleasant. Um, this was, uh, I mean, yes, that's the introduction chapter of my book, which tells about my personal story. I mean, I uh, of my arrest in Kuala Lumpur in in September 2017, why I was arrested. Uh, Because I was invited to Kuala Lumpur by an organization called the Islamic Renaissance Front. And as you can understand from the name, they are arguing for some reformation, some opening, some rethinking in Islam towards liberty, towards toleration. And uh, this is an organization that has been a friend of mine. They published my work in Malaysia. They hosted me in Malaysia three times before that particular trip. Uh, and they organize big lectures for me in Kuala Lumpur in big venues, and uh, one of them would be on the issue of apostasy, you know, which is leaving your religion and you know choosing another religion or becoming a, a secular person, a totally atheist or something else. And of course, in a free society, it should be your choice, right? I mean, of course, religious believers don't want to lose people to the dark side, but you know, uh, if that happens, you can pray for their soul, but you're not going to do something probably more than that well that is not the case in some muslim majority countries in in about a dozen muslim majority countries again not all of them there are 50 at least more than uh, more than 50 muslim majority countries but in those places apostasy is considered a crime punishable by death so if you're in saudi arabia and if you come up and say hey i become a christian or atheist or california buddhist or whatever you will be in trouble so uh, in Malaysia they are moderate so they are not you know doing what the Saudis do. So they're not executing the apostates but they're sending to, sending them to a rehabilitation center for about six months to you know fix the person back And I argued against this idea that apostasy is a crime from an Islamic point of view because many people in the West may not know, but this whole idea that apostates should be punished along some other troubling, aspects of Islamic law do not come from the Quran it comes from later textual sources there's a saying attributed to prophet muhammad but how accurate is that or not you know that's always a good question and i said hey listen yes our islamic civilization you know our religious tradition has this idea that apostasy is a crime but that was how the world was then i mean the byzantine empire had the exact same laws the sassanid empire had very similar Uh, policies of coercion for its own religion, the world has matured, come to a better place, and now we should accept full religious freedom. And I quoted a section of a Quranic verse, which has become the motto of the more liberty-minded Muslims, which is no compulsion in religion, or there is no compulsion in religion. And I said at the end, well, at the end of lecture, I said, you know what? If people cannot believe in in Islam or any religion, you cannot really make them believe by policing religion cannot be policed I said that and a few minutes ago serious guys walked into the room and they said we are the religion police that you have be talking about <laughs> and uh, they you know asked me a few questions supposedly they heard complaints about my talk in advance and uh they let me go that night but they said we will watch your video and we will see and then next morning i was summoned to their headquarters and my host said you know you should leave the country that's maybe a better solution and i went to the airport and at the airport you know i got my boarding pass thinking that i would be in the lounge and chilling and you know i was rather <laughs> arrested there and they charged me for violating the a law which bans teaching religion without permission from the authorities uh they said it's two years in jail that you're charged for and uh that was like not a good night and uh, i was locked up and next morning they took me to court court a sharia court and they interrogated me for two hours at the end i was like go but as i say in the book it was thanks to some high level diplomacy Uh, other otherwise maybe i would spend more time in malaysia more time than planned. So ultimately, I I was saved from that, but then I I begin that story in the book to open up this discussion, saying, hey, fellow Muslims, we have a problem here. We have the idea that religion should be imposed by the state uh, to make people pious or to keep them in the religion forcibly, to cover women or to punish blasphemers. All these issues are there in Islam. And I'm a Muslim myself. I'm not criticizing this from a purely secular point of view i'm just saying hey listen christianity outgrew similar histories in its past there was a time that christians were burning heretics quote-unquote at the stake but they realized that this is not the right way to you know represent to articulate their religion and i think our time has passed come and and there are many arguments for it and i rely on of course there's a scholarship for this i mean there's this Modernist or Islamic liberalism, as we call it. There is a scholarly tradition, and I represent that, and I popularize that to broad audiences. Uh, but you know, it sometimes puts you in trouble as as, <laughs> as as was the case in Kuala Lumpur three years ago.
1: Well, Mustafa, I found your book incredibly enlightening and and historically fascinating. I mean, you're a gifted writer, but the way you weave in some of the history of Islam and and quoting these various scholars, and there's a lot of caricatures of Islam out there, as you're more aware of than I am. And you correct the record. You taught me a lot about it. I, I wow, it was just, I was really impressed with the scholarship of the book. And it, it, the way I would sum it up is you chose the word reopening Muslim minds. It's like you're arguing we need to get back to our roots because it's all there.
2: Yeah, the seeds of freedom are there, as I say it in the book, and we have to rediscover them and cultivate them. That's what I say. You're right. I mean, first of all, Ron, thank you for pointing one thing out. And that is some people in the West think that, oh, we have our own judeo Christian tradition, which is, of course, compatible with democracy and secular state and free markets and toleration. But then there's this Islam out there, which is totally different and, you know, totally different in a negative way. I would say... It's really not that simple. Actually, Islam is following the Judeo-Christian tradition. There's a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. If you look at it from a theological point of view, the Quran itself presents Islam as yet another Abrahamic you know, uh, episode in, in, in world history. Uh, it was proclamation of Abrahamic monotheism to Arabs, which used to be pagans before Islam or idolaters. And uh, therefore... Some of the troubling attitudes in Islam today, the idea that you should have jihad in the name of Islam as is some violent you know, action, sometimes, unfortunately, in the, face of, in the form of terrorism, which is, by the way, a very extreme phenomenon in the world of Islam today, but it's a big problem, of course, or you should use coercion to you know, punish sinners and all these things also you can find in Christian history, too. Uh, And, uh, I mean, Crusades, the Inquisition, (laughs) uh, anti-Semitism, you know, there's a big problem of anti-Semitism in the world of Islam today. Actually, until the 20th century, Christian world, Europe at least, I mean, was more (laughs) anti-Semitic than the Muslim world. That's why you have episodes of Jewish people escaping from Christendom to the Ottoman Empire to find religious freedom there. So uh, we are, what I would say is that Islam is not really uh, a the a troubling religion from a western point of view it's just we are at a very troubling era of the islamic civilization if you looked at christian world in the 17th century you wouldn't have very high opinions about you know christian toleration when protestants and catholics were slaughtering each other um that change in christianity luckily, like how well with ideas of people like john locke or roger williams you know or Pierre Bale, these were early enlightenment thinkers, progressives, or they were were just preachers of tolerance, and most of them were religious themselves. They just reinterpreted Christianity. So I'm arguing that we are at a point in Islam, it's a crisis of Islam, just like 17th century crisis uh, of Christianity with the Protestant, 30 years war. Uh, We need a John Locke step, John Lockean step forward. And what I'm trying to do is to put the argument for this together. It has theological issues, it has jurisprudential issues. And as you uh, uh, kindly said in my book, I try to put this in a narrative that everybody can understand. And yes, I speak of going back to certain things because I believe in the few first centuries of Islam, there's a bright era that needs to be understood and cultivated. No wonder, I mean, 1,000 years ago, the world's best scientists or innovations were or, or merchants or capitalist uh, entrepreneurship was coming from the muslim world and i'm telling to fellow muslims let's think what was the secret of that golden age and i say it was cosmopolitanism muslims didn't shy away from learning from greek philosophy studying aristotle or plato and and synthesizing that with islam and and islamic thought itself was more diverse but gradually a more dominant and intolerant orthodoxy dominated the Islamic world and brought the idea that if you study philosophy you'll become an infidel if you you know disagree with the orthodox doctrines you become a heretic and then that you should be punished for that so that happened after the initial centuries of Islam which was more diverse and vibrant so that's the kind of enlightened era that I'm calling Muslims to go back to get some ideas which was still not That's not exactly classical liberalism there, but there are seeds of uh, freedom and tolerance there that we can bring into today.
1: Oh, that's great. Mustafa, you're asking the right question. I think it's like study wealth, right? We don't need to study poverty. We need to explain how wealth is created, and that's what you're trying to do by looking back a 1,000 years. Unfortunately, we're up against our break, and folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at Varisage.com. We will post full show notes with our interview with Mustafa today the Day at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
3: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
4: For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com TSOE and subscribe now.
0: We don't follow, we lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: And we are back with our guest, Mustafa Akiole. And Mustafa, I wanted to, to build on the conversation that you had with Ron and talk to you a little bit more about the, whole, the notion of Islam and its relationship to democracy and liberalism. And I wonder if you would, would t- take us through, that. there's a very scary phrase that the American right tends to use when talking about Muslims, and that is Sharia law. All you have to do is throw out Sharia law, and it sends people scattering into the, the woods. But Sharia law has a very strong foundation of property rights. And I wonder if you would, would take us through, through that. Definitely.
2: I mean, uh, thanks for pointing that out. Regarding Sharia, I'll say a few things. I mean, there are good news and bad news about the Sharia. <laughs> there, are, there, there are aspects of Sharia that actually you can see as a, a basis for rights. and, and the, brought, let's What we call liberalism in the classical sense of the term today. One is, as you said, property rights. The idea that the government cannot confiscate property at will. Or, or you can establish a foundation called waqf in Arabic, and that's protected from the rulers' encroachment. Uh, The idea that you have uh, property rights, I mean, stealing is a major crime and you have inheritance rights. You can leave your inheritance to your children and it's not not gonna be a centralized state that's gonna come and take it. Now, this partly comes from the fact, an interesting and important fact, uh, that Prophet Muhammad was among the world's founders of religion, was the only merchant. (laughs) I mean, he was a merchant for forty years before becoming a prophet and started to preach monotheism. So when he has sayings about the beauties of trade and and the honest merchant as the most honorable person, and uh, and he he has sayings about trade being one of the ways that God's bounty and blessing being diver- you know, diversified around the world. There is a very interesting episode actually. One day, people come in Medina and ask to Prophet Muhammad. By the way, he established a market in Medina, which didn't exist, a Muslim market. Uh, And they say, the prices are too high. Like, there is some, you know, uh, shortage in market. Can you please tell the merchants to sell for cheaper? And he says, only God fixes the prices. I cannot fix the prices. And how God fixes the prices? Well, naturally, you know as uh, with the kind of mechanism that Adam Smith would later call, you know, the hidden hand. So there's this very interesting capitalist heritage of Islam. And interestingly, the socialist trends in the Muslim world emerged much later in the 20th century uh, with, uh, with reaction to Western colonialism and anger at the West. And a lot of Muslims felt themselves politically closer to the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc. And, and there emerged this idea of uh, Islamic socialism, what they call. But generally, Islam has been a market-friendly religion. There are some issues about inher- uh, interest, is interest a lot or not. I take a uh, you know, reinterpretive uh, position there. I say what the Quran was denouncing wasn't interest per se, but a very unfair kind of usury where uh, you wouldn't agree on a certain interest rate, but it was a kind of a mafia style. Like, I give you $100 next, uh, next year if you don't give it back. I can make it 500 at will. So that's a kind of, that was the sort of thing that the Quran condemned, but not the modern banking interest. That's a, in, that's a position I you know, uh, uphold. So there are some issues to deal with. But yes, uh, Islam has been a capitalist friendly religion, and sharia, Islamic law is a part of that. Uh, there's also the very interesting fact that There was something good about the Sharia in the sense that Sharia was not made by the rulers. Sharia came not from the rulers, but a higher authority, which is God, which was higher than the rulers themselves. So it was articulated by scholars which were sometimes at least independent. And when they were independent, they could sometimes actually stand up against injustice of the rulers. So Sharia should not be demonized. However, Certainly there are terrible things done in the name of Sharia today in the world. Blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, and I think these are all should be reformed. And uh, the problem is, Sharia has been too much associated with the state and state power and using state power to advance religion. If we disentangle the Sharia and therefore Islam from the state, it can be a communal religious code, which Muslims voluntarily follow, and that should not be a problem for anybody. And the best example there is the Jewish practice, the halakha. Uh, I mean, actually, the sharia and halakha are very similar things. They're both codes of life for the believers of that religious tradition. And they are sometimes similar. I mean, we Muslims don't eat pork. Why? Well, we got it from the Jews. I mean, they don't eat pork, right? I mean, their dietary laws, some dress codes, all these things were actually in the halakha as well. But, but in Judaism, you have a very interesting history uh, Judaism disassociated itself from the states, I mean, unwillingly, but it happened, for 2,000 years. <laughs> so uh, Orthodox Jews follow halakha, but they're not stoning adulterers to death, right? I mean, that, that's that gone. I mean, that was, they, they adopted to modern world, became the champions even the, of the modern world. In Islam, uh, the, the uh, that that association with the state and coercive power for religion, corporal punishments, these things are there and they're implemented and I'm against those. But uh, is there a threat in my view that some Muslims in Oklahoma will uh, bring Sharia to that state and start flogging people? I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, Those Muslims will not condemn the concept of Sharia to you probably, but what they will mean by Sharia is that they will fast in Ramadan and they will make sure that they don't eat non-kosher food and they, not, they don't touch pork or probably they don't drink alcohol. So that's kind of communal observance, individual observance. And that in itself should not be a problem. It's, it's a part of religious freedom. So it's a complicated picture. I mean, Sharia is a good or bad. I mean, I will say, well, the Sharia of the Taliban is certainly evil and horrible. Uh, but uh, the Sharia as, as, as something defined as idea of a justice and, and religious practice, that's not a problem, of course.
3: Yeah, I grew up in New York, and, and there are ca- is case law in New York with, with New York State deferring uh, decisions to, to the Jewish courts in certain cir- circumstances. In fact, so much so that a sta- I, I was divorced about 25 years ago, a s- standard part of a divorce in New York includes, even though I'm not Jewish, that I, I will not uh, resist a, what's called a get, <laughs> because that's part of the standard language. <laughs>
2: yeah, 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 Actually, I think Jewish <clears throat> practice is the... Model that we Muslims, I think, will and should follow in the sense that you can be a pious conservative person living in your own conservative. And by the way, there are ultra Orthodox Jews and more conservative Jews, or, you know, they're there total Reform Jews as well. And I mm-hmm. think that is the, hel- that's the healthy diversity that we w- Muslims will probably follow. But we should make sure that we disassociate uh, the idea of religious piety from the coercive powers of the state. That's why I'm sure. speaking about John Locke. And by the way, in Judaism, Moses Mendelssohn had made the same emphasis uh, leading to the uh, Jewish enlightenment you know, in the 18th century. So we have issues to deal with in the Islamic world today, for sure. But uh, the, the, the issue is, how can we make Muslims, 1.6 billion people around the world, understand that by embracing liberty, by accepting tolerance, they're not abandoning their faith, right? Uh, They're not giving out their God, they're not, you know, selling out their religion. No, they're just accepting that they should not impose it on other people, and imposing in itself is wrong, and it's not even in the religion itself, and it's even counterproductive. You make people hate religion, or you make them hypocrites. So that's the kind of arguments that I'm dealing with, which is very similar, as I tell you, if you read John Locke, his letter concerning concerning toleration, you will see that he was exactly dealing with these kind of issues in Christianity uh, back uh, in his day.
3: Yeah, I, I was having a conversation with my mentor this morning, and one of the things we talked about uh, religion uh, spin. And, and he and I said, you know, it's taken Christianity o- almost two thousand years to embrace the concept of, you know, hate hate the sin, love the sinner. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> right. But I wanted to just jump back. You you mentioned this earlier, and you say the Quran uh, uh, defines the Prophet as God's bounty, which I think is fantastic. And then there, uh, later on in, in your book, you, you say that Muhammad is quoted as saying, "He who makes money pleases God." Is that the Quran? that that's or is that, uh, it's or is that one Quran, of the sayings? It's the Hadith that is a saying attributed to Prophet
2: Muhammad al Kaseebah Habibullah. It is, okay. by the way, written uh, on. If you go to Istanbul ever, and uh, you probably visit the Grand Bazaar, you, you know <laughs> it's the big, it's the world's one of the oldest shopping malls, uh, and <laughs> and it's in in one of the gates. It's engraved there. Tho, who, who those who makes money pleases God or the or the lover of God, friend of God. So there are those sayings in Islam that uh, promotes the idea of commerce. And uh, that did, did, was that modern capitalism exactly. It felt it fell short of it, but there is certainly a uh, idea that you know it's your wealth. You should be able to freely trade, and and uh, and trading by mutual consent uh, is is a key value, which is in the Quran as well.
3: Sure. I wanted to ask you about this because I think this is important. We've had um, Rabbi Daniel Lappin on and he oftentimes goes back to er the origin of words in Hebrew and it gets insight from them, and I, the translation of the of the saying as you said he who makes money pleases God. I wanted to ask you about the verb m- makes. It, is is that verb in Arabic? Is it in the sense of create a new? Um, is that the same same kind of word, or is it? Uh, because what what I think is so significant is that it's not takes money, right? We we or. or it's make. We actually create. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's new stuff. So, I just wanted to ask you about that word, if you had any insight there. I should
2: look more carefully into that, if, I rec- if I'm not wrong. The, the, the Arabic is al kasib habibullah. Kasib is acquire, actually. But mm. acquire, not from someone. It's just uh, through trade. I mean, by trade, actually, you sell something. You acquire money by giving something in return, of course. Mm-hmm. So, it's not creation. I can't say that. Uh, But I mean, that's an interesting idea. I'll look into what Kasp means in different, uh, maybe, uh, meanings in in classical dictionaries. Uh, But there is certainly the idea that uh, trade is good and also, and besides those sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, I mean, I should underline that. We have also theorists of free market (laughs) in classical Islam. And the biggest one is Ibn Khaldun. I mean, I don't know if you have seen uh, my work on him. And Ibn Khaldun was actually one of the world's greatest social scientists I mean, in the pre-modern era. I mean, he was the only social scientist in classical Islam uh, of, of a towering uh, uh, status. And he has very interesting sayings. I mean, he, for example, observed in his day, that was in 14th century North Africa, that countries or kingdoms, as he called them, with high tax uh, levels, with high taxes, actually become poorer over time and countries with lower taxes become richer over time and he said because when you take too much high taxes people lose the incentive to do trade and when you lower the taxes actually the empire becomes stronger which which sounds contra uh, contrary intuitive well not counterintuitive intuitive if you're a classical liberal if you're a socialist it would <laughs> be counterintuitive intuitive and <laughs> The funny thing is, Ibn Khaldun made this point, And you know who popularized this in the Western world? I've got to guess Laffer. It's the Laffer, Laffer curve. <laughs> Laffer curve. It's the Laffer curve. And Laffer says that in his website, that, you know, the idea goes back to Ibn Khaldun. And there's an, there's an even more famous person than Arthur Laffer in America who also publicized Ibn Khaldun. He was Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I could count, Ronald Reagan quoted Ibn Khaldun 11 times, either on TV uh, statements uh, to the press. Twice in the New York Times, he wrote articles in the New York Times. One article in in which he was quoted, the other one was an op-ed by Ronald Reagan, where he quoted uh, Ibn Khaldun. I mean, he got the century wrong in one of the... Those little details are... Minor, but he got the idea right that you know uh, a, a very high tax uh, implies a lot of people. Oh, we will get so much tax and we'll be a wealthy country. It, it's it, I Abduhaldun mean, said that works the exact
3: the opposite. Ridiculous. Well, this is fantastic stuff, Mustafa. But we are against our break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage Show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows are available on the website. TheSoulOfEnterprise.com and a note that we do have our Patreon channel where you can go to Patreon.com TSOE where you can listen to our shows commercial free as well as potentially sign up for our bonus type show and but right now a word from our sponsor oh and that Patreon channel is sponsored by 90Minds if you need a mind find one at 90Minds.com and a word from our sponsors
0: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play
4: Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
3: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
4: Commercials, plus bonus content go to patreon.com TSOE subscribe now and be free you're worth it
0: This is the voice america influencers channel be inspired We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
1: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Mustafa Akil, and we're talking about, I'm talking about with him, reopening Muslim Minds, his 2021 book. And Mustafa, I did. I love the... uh, the reference to Eben Caldoun, uh, the, the, the originator of the Laffer Curve, he didn't, he didn't draw it on a napkin either. So I thought that was <laughs> pretty good. Uh, he wrote
2: it more eloquently, I should say. He, yes. he
1: did. He did. It was great. Uh, in chapter eleven of the book, you, you you title it "Freedom Matters," and you ask, "What is freedom? What does it mean?" Let me give you one of my favorite definitions of this, and I, I just want to get your reaction to it. I think that liberty is the absence of coercion but i think freedom is a choice if i choose to live under the edicts of islam or kosher you know if i'm jewish whatever i mean that's a choice marriage is a choice even though it restricts my 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 freedom but it's not coercive what's your reaction to that definition
2: that sounds very Good to me, and that is very resonant with the approach that I have towards issues about Islam. When I uh, speak to fellow Muslims, I say, "Well, listen. When I'm preaching freedom, I'm not telling that you you should all take your headscarves off and you should be unpracticing Muslims. I'm not advocating that. I myself am a you know humbly practicing Muslim, uh, but I choose to do that. You know, it's my choice to fast in Ramadan." It's my choice to uh, you know, have some dietary requirements or pray to, towards Mecca. But the point is there should be no pressure from the outside. So the, the, the absence, of course, of restraint, as you said, liberty. We need that liberty so that we are pious in the way we believe in. Uh, and uh, when we do, do we have this in the Muslim world? Well, in some parts. I mean, Bosnia-Herzegovina is a Muslim majority country, one of the freest Muslim countries. And well, is a very free country uh, in European standards, but if you go to Saudi Arabia, I mean, now it's slightly changing, uh, but uh, I know that when the prayer time comes, you must uh, shut your door, and, and if you're if you're a shopkeeper, you know you have to stop yeah. uh, selling anything because the prayer time has come, and you you are supposed to pray, or if you're a woman, you're supposed to cover your head. In Iran. There are besiege forces, or these are kind of religious police in, in their terminology, that go after women if you're not covering your head, you know, they will come and force you. They can even jail you for that. And and uh, that, is, that doesn't create piety, that creates hypocrisy. If you force people to become religious, uh, they become hypocritical. There's a lot of resentment. I see a lot of people becoming ex-Muslims or they lose faith in Islam. Uh, they have all the right to do so. I'm not against their right. But if you are, but why are they becoming ex-Muslims? Well, many reasons, philosophical reasons too, but some of them are just simply fed up with these coercive understandings of Islam. So I totally agree with you that uh, what we need by liberty and freedom, I mean, these people define these concepts differently, but absence of coercive restraint and the right to choose. And once you choose something, you can you can deprive yourself from food uh, as we do in ramadan that is your freedom so you are actually it's not doing everything whatever you wish you may be wishing to limit your desires and i think there's great wisdom and virtue in that i mean it's a part of human uh, character to sometimes give up things that are uh, maybe you may desire but you don't do it but that should still should be your choice it not be It shouldn't be something that is dictated by the government or even the community.
1: And Mustafa, you quote Bernard Lewis, and he's about the only person of any serious scholarship that I've ever read about Islam. And he said, the medieval Islamic world offered vastly more freedom than any of its predecessors. And I guess my question is, are there liberal Muslim countries, you had just mentioned a few, that you can point to as achieving what you're advocating?
2: uh yes and no i mean first of all on bernard lewis i mean he was a great scholar i agree with you and uh some people have a negative view of bernard lewis by the way they call him an orientalist because you know Mm -hmm. he had uh well i think i don't his politics is a different thing his political choices especially in later years but i think he was a great scholar and i think he said very fair things about islam and one of the things is that he realized that the classical islamic world was not a place where you have a freedom problem, I mean, compared to the other other civilizations. One thing about Islam that is interesting is, from the beginning, Islam acknowledged that pre-existing religions, in particular Christianity and Judaism, have a right to survive. It's not that Muslims took the sword and they conquered a lot of places, so that happened. It was imperialism. But they allowed Jews and Christians to remain as Jews and Christians. And at that time, that was an incredible thing. Uh, they even then extended that status to Hinduism and, and Buddhism. Uh, so there was, no, there, there was very little forced conversion in Islam. But this was not bad for its time. I mean, uh, but it was not legal equality. It was not equality under the law. And I think that idea that everybody should be equal under the law came in the nineteenth century, and there and freedom flourished in, in the Muslim world. Sorry, in the Western world in the past few centuries, the problem in Islam is that we couldn't catch up with that flourishing of freedom. And when it came from the West, these uh, rigid uh, pockets of orthodoxy in the Muslim world said, "This is coming from the infidels, right? We don't want their ideas. We don't want their. We have to reject everything that is coming from outside." Whereas I'm arguing that, well, uh, we, we didn't have that parochialism and close-mindedness in early Islam, and that was precisely our secret, you know. We didn't shy away from learning from Aristotle. Why can't we today learn from Hayek, or, you know, or some other, other modern tinker of today? Does this answer your question? you were?
1: Yeah, no, that no, that, absolutely. Can, can you describe, and I hope I don't butcher this word, the Iresia Because when you explained that, I just thought that was beautiful.
2: Which word again, sorry? Uh,
1: I, I uh, Is it Irija, Urjah, I-R-J-A?
2: Uh, oh, Irjah, got it, got it. Urjah, okay, okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, yes, sure. <laughs> that's the moon mur- Okay, that is actually, um, what I do in my book is to dig into the history of Islamic thought and find some ideas that can help us to advance liberty today with Islamic arguments. And one of them is the doctrine of irja, as you said. Now, irja in Arabic means postponement. Now this was, what does it mean? What, 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 what were they were postponing? Uh, let me tell you the story how this came. This idea emerged when early Muslims were at fight with each other on a big theological Sikhism, right, the division. It was the civil war, the first civil war in Islam, which actually evolved into the dis- distinction between Sunnis and Shiites. Uh, there were supporters of Ali and there were supporters of Muawiyah. These were the two caliphs. And Ali was, of course, the nephew of the prophet. And also he was highly respected. Uh, And both sides actually excommunicated each other. And there was also another fanatic side that excommunicated everybody. So this was like people were saying, you're not a real Muslim. You're not a real Muslim. The, The proponents of Irja said, hey, listen, we cannot decide who's the real Muslim. God decides that. When will God decide that? When we die in the afterlife, when we go to heaven and hell. So let's postpone this to God, to afterlife. Let him figure out when we die. Until then, let's live and let live. Basically, that was our philosophy, which actually helped diffuse the early tension in Islam. And I'm saying let's let's revive the irja idea to all the better divisions today between Sunnis and Shiites, between Ahmedis and Sunnis in Pakistan, and or the persecution of Ahmadis or other minorities. If you think this Muslim has a bad idea, well, postpone it to God and just you know be good neighbors with him. And 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 of course it's not just between Muslims, but other uh, religious traditions as well. If that if you think the other person has a bad lifestyle or philosophy, uh, postpone it to God and yeah you know, just be a uh, just live in liberty together. You also
1: quote another verse from the Quran. The is it the Surah Meida, where Jews follow the Torah and Christians the Gospel, and you know you compete in doing good here in the world, and then you all return to God, and He will make clear to you the matters you differed about.
2: Exactly, and I just thought that, that was great. That is, I mean, there are there are those kind of magnanimous passages in the Quran, because you know Prophet Muhammad came out and trying to Prophet Muhammad was trying to preach monotheism to idolatrous Arabs. And for him, Christians and Jews were the established monotheists that he was trying to actually connect with. And, and, he, and there are passages in the Quran which says, God has revealed the Torah before, God has revealed the gospels to Jesus, and now the Quran is coming, and these are all God's books, and you know whoever follows these books will be saved. So there are passages in the Quran that Jews and Christians can be also saved in afterlife, which was a very ecumenical thing to say at the time. But Islamic Orthodoxy got rid of some of these teachings. They said, oh, that was until when Islam, that only means they could be saved until Islam comes. So there are layers and layers on top of the Quran created by the Orthodoxy. And some of those layers are, I think, wrong ones that we have to question today.
1: Well, Mustafa, this has been excellent. Ed's going to take you home, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. I thoroughly enjoyed your book and we will promote it as best we can here. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Ron. I enjoyed this conversation and I'm humbled to hear these comments from you. Thank you.
1: And folks, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at varisage.com And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage, and other sponsors.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
3: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create... Package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
4: me plug ron and ed's book which totally makes sense like the diamond water paradox go to patreon.com tsoe and subscribe today please for the love of
0: god make it stop
3: And we are back with Mustafa Akiol, author of Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, as well as the book that I'm talking with him about, Islam Without Extremes. And Mustafa, I wanted to ask you about a couple of, uh, again, I'm a language person, my dad instilled this in me, Uh, a quote quote from Braudel, who's a French historian, uh, and you have this in your book. Uh, anything in Western capitalism of imported origin undoubtedly came from Islam. <laughs> and you t- take us through a couple of different terms. So uh, SAC for Czech, uh, Mudaraba, which ultimately became limited company, of course the word tariff. So there's, there's just so many things and terms to build on from uh, Islam that have made their way in, in, into our language today. So talk a little bit about that relationship.
2: Thank you so much, Ed. Uh, that is true. And a lot of words, actually, in English can be traced. Like, I mean, I'll say a few words, just not on trade, but alchemy, you know, comes from uh, Arabic. Algebra. Al- algebra. <laughs> algebra means in Arabic, al which means broken parts, you know, uh, and uh, unification of broken parts. Or uh, uh, algorithm comes from al khwarizmi uh, there are a lot of tariff, as you said, or, or zenith, or syrup. A lot of words coming from. Just like today, there are so many English words today. In, I mean, internet or bank or you know, today I don't know ATM or that kind, whatever you dollars, you know. Because a thousand years ago, Islamic world was more productive, and 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 it was inventing things that was passing through the Mediterranean and influencing uh, Europe. And uh, capitalism, capitalist institutions were one of them. I would recommend, I mean, I've mentioned this in in several pages of my book, but there are books devoted to this issue. I would recommend checking Benedict Koechler. He has this book, uh, Islam and the Birth of Capitalism, or Early Islam and the Birth of Capitalism, which he actually shows that, uh, I mean, the word "suck." I mean, that is Arabs, merchants, instead of carrying so much gold with them, they developed the idea that you can write a paper showing that you have this much money. You can put it in Baghdad, and when you go to Fez a year later, you can show that you actually have it there. Uh, that suck became, which means written document, Arabic became Czech. because the Crusaders, when it came to the Middle East, discussed these. They discovered, oh my God, these guys are they have they have baths, you know, <laughs> it was or food or cuisine, that that kind of stuff. Uh, which means that there is no reason why the really sad situation in the Muslim world today—it's an underdeveloped part of the world today, most in, uh, mostly. If it is developed, it's thanks to oil money, rather than a really productive economy. Which is not a fate. You know, it can change. You know, it, there was a time that Islam was the more vibrant civilization. And uh, re- regarding uh, also capitalism, the idea of waqf as a foundation. Some people think that actually even influenced the Western world, the, the birth of foundations in Islam. And Muslims learn it from the Jews, by the way. So I mean, civilizations or Muslims learn certain things from the Hindus anyway. So civilizations borrow and change and learn from each other. And when we say our civilization has figured out everything and we, need, we don't need to learn from, from the people outside anything, then you begin to stagnate. That certainly has happened in the Islamic civilization. And I would argue against thinking like that to Westerners today, who, 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 some of whom think that, you know, we should just shut our doors and uh, close our gates and reject every new idea or tradition or value. That, 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 is, that leads to stagnation. And in the long run, it will have uh, negative consequences, as we had yeah. in the Muslim world
3: one of my favorite quotes from your book is is islam one could say has produced the seeds of freedom regrettably they were just not rooted in fertile soil
2: yeah and And that uh, is by that fertile soil what i also meant was that one thing in in islam has been the dominance of despotic states from the very beginning and uh some people think that why the why europe didn't have, have the exact same thing europe had lots of city states Uh, so when you were expelled if you're a heretic quote-unquote you were expelled from one place you could go to the other other prince so that diversity in europe political diversity has been helpful for the rise of liberty uh like uh, aristocracy landed aristocracy that has been helpful Uh, in islam the reason why we didn't have that some people explain it through just topography i mean you just you can conquer the middle east from one end to the other whereas in europe all the mountains and and the rivers and their natural borders so there are even there are arguments about the impact of even topography geography on political systems and uh, I believe Islam uh, is in a very unfortunate state today uh, as a Muslim I'll admit that we have a uh, dire lack of freedom in 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 many Muslim majority countries we have very rigid interpretations of Islam and i will it will not change but if book I write or some other liberal minded Muslim writes in a few years, but the battle has to be fought and, and it, it would be wrong to give up. And I think when John Locke argued for a tolerant Christianity at his time, some people thought, you know, this is not going to happen.
3: <laughs> yeah. But
2: it, it happened and it helped Christians themselves and it helped the world.
3: Well, we've only got about two or three minutes left, and I and speaking speaking of autocratic states, uh, I want to completely shift gears on you and in, in, in a, a place where Muslims are now oppressed, and that of course is the Uyghurs in in China. Uh, Ron and I have have talked a lot about this, where we uh, talk about Jimmy and his experiences in 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 Hong Kong, um, but what what are your thoughts on why why does it seem that that, that so many Westerners seem to be willing to talk a great game here in the States about freedom, but when it comes to the Uyghurs in China, they they completely ignore what's going on over there.
2: Well, I wrote an article on this in the New York Times about two years ago, China's Gulag for Muslims. And I said the Gulag system is back, uh, the Soviet Gulag system. Now it's in China, it's a bit more high-tech version of it, but it's the same idea, that you have internal uh, camps to re-educate people. Well, it's one of the greatest tragedies of the world today, massive human rights violations. Uh, well, actually, the Western world shows more interest in this than the Muslims. I mean, that's the, that's the mm. biggest. I mean, I see, I see Western media interest. I mean, it's articles in uh, Western media. Uh, in, in the U.S., the political leadership, both the Republican and Democrat, I should say, bipartisan, has shown some care for Uyghurs. And that is important. And, and, and Uyghurs are happy with that. I have many Uyghur friends. I know that. What is even more disappointing is that Muslim leaders themselves are generally silent on this issue. Uh, you know, and the reason is well, friendship with China pays, <laughs> and China is using that very effectively. Turkey has to be the country which is most outspoken on this issue because Uyghurs are actually Turkic people. They speak a language very similar to our. Kind. I mean, I grew up in Turkey with the Uyghur cause. I mean, it was always there. I mean. There is a deep connection between the Uyghurs and the Turkish people, uh, but uh, President and President Erdogan, Prime Minister Erdogan, ten years ago was championing the Uyghurs. He has said nothing in the past four years. Why? Because he gave up on the idea of joining the European Union and allying himself with Western powers. He's very friendly with Russia and China, and you know, um, so he doesn't want to offend China. And China is very insistent on using his. It's leverage to silence people. Another thing is that there are a lot of Muslim despots. Uh, They don't like their internal issues to be discussed. So they like the idea that China's internal issues should not be discussed or criticized. So sometimes despots understand each other's language and sympathize with uh,
3: each other's all God. right well we have uh, so many still questions for you and of course we didn't even touch your third book which i haven't had a chance to read yet uh the islamic jesus how the king of the jews became the prophet of the muslims um we have 30 seconds left very quickly are you working on another book yes a book new one is coming
2: out It's you'll like it uh, i think it's titled why as a muslim i defend liberty So if we'll put all my arguments about liberty in a nutshell and with new arguments and new episodes from history, uh, hopefully we can discuss that too.
3: This we would love to have you back
1: on and and do that. So, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, I'm taking the week off. We have project management (laughs) and the subscription business model, so it's going to be your show. All right. We'll
3: see you in 167 hours.
1: This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. If you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thank you for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.